Well, last Sunday, uh, I began a new series on the life-giving power of God's Word. Uh, The purpose uh, in that first message was twofold. Uh, First, to give us an appreciation for the inherent power that God's Word possesses to accomplish God's plan for our lives. Now, what did God intend for His Word to accomplish in our lives? Well, we discovered last Sunday from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3, that God gave, his, gave us His Word to accomplish four fundamental things. First, to purify our souls. Uh, God is after transformation of the inner man uh, to make us more like Jesus Christ, that we would develop His attitudes, His perspective, His values, and that that would be reflected in our character and our conduct. Second purpose for which God gave us His Word is to perfect us in love. First, to give us a love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that He would be our first love, our greatest passion and pursuit, and then also to give us a love for one another so that a lost world would stand up and take notice because love is the proof of the pudding. Uh, Love is what demonstrates the authenticity of our walk with Christ and the reality of His presence in the midst of His family. Third, to perpetuate eternal life. And we saw eternal life is not talking about just life that lasts forever. It is that, but it's talking about a quality of life. Uh, John said, this is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ. So God's Word is there to bring us face-to-face with an encounter with who Jesus is, what He did, that we might truly bow before Him and give Him the honor and the glory and worship that is due Him. And then fourth, to produce spiritual growth. Now, the second purpose in last Sunday's message was to provide you an opportunity then to evaluate your life and to determine whether or not, in fact, God's Word is accomplishing those things in your life. And if not, the problem is not with God's Word, but rather your response, your receptivity to God's Word, which will be our focus the next three weeks. Now, this morning, we're going to look at Christ's parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 as we work through this parable. As we discover, and I trust this will be a very practical message on how to receive God's Word. How to receive God's Word. Now, in this parable, of course, the sower represents God or Christ. The seed that he sows represents God's Word. And, of course, uh, the soil, and we'll see four different kinds of soil where the seed is sown, represents our lives, uh, our response to God's Word. And in the parable, uh, we will discover four truths that will enable us uh, to see God's Word take root in our hearts Uh, to become deeply embedded, to blossom into spiritual growth and fruit-bearing. We will also discover in this message the three most common barriers that prevent God's Word from taking root in our hearts. 
And the first truth that we'll see this morning, I trust you have the sermon notes. And uh, you know, when I, I need to change that title. Uh, that's really your homework assignment right there. Uh, how many times have you heard me say, listening to a message has never changed the first person? It's practicing God's Word. It's applying God's Word. So I pray you'll see this more than just sermon notes, but as you uh, take those notes, you'll take it with you as your homework assignment to put this into practice in your life. And the first truth that we see is I must be receptive to God's Word. I must be receptive to God's Word. I must eagerly welcome God's Word in my life. You know, I think of uh, last Sunday, one of the verses we looked at, you don't have to turn there, was uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul is thinking back when he initially came to the city of Thessalonica and the uh, reception that he received uh, from those that he ministered to. And he makes this incredible statement. And, and this is what it means to be receptive to God's Word. He says, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us, and that word received means when you welcomed God's Word uh, uh, into your life, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So if we're going to grow spiritually, it all begins by being receptive to God's Word, being eager to welcome, to invite, to embrace God's Word in our lives. Look at the parable, Luke chapter 8, and look at verse uh, 5, verse 5, which gives us the first type of soul, uh, soil. It said, the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And then notice he gives the interpretation, the meaning in verse 12. And those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so they may not believe and be saved. You know, Jesus shared this story in Galilee, uh, which was fertile, uh, a very fertile agricultural region Uh, with innumerable farm fields. And the fields were bordered and transversed by these three-foot-wide paths. Uh, The farmer would use these to be able to move about his fields and tend them. And they were also used by travelers, so not as to disturb the fields. And because of the constant traffic, uh, these footpaths became hard as pavement. And so when the sower... Uh, spread his seed, uh, some of the seed would fall on these footpaths, which could not be penetrated due to the fact that the soil uh, was so very, very hard. And so, as Jesus said, the birds would come, and they would uh, eat the seed off of those footpaths, and what was left was trampled underfoot by men. So, what does the hardened path represent? I think we could say it this way. The hardened path represents a closed mind. Again, if we're saying that the the first key to spiritually growing is being receptive to God's Word, eagerly welcoming it, inviting it, embracing it into your life, then it's obvious 
that you're not going to grow if you have a closed mind. Now, you see here the specific application is to the lost who close their minds and their hearts to God's truth, who suppress the truth and refuse to glorify God, refuse to submit and humble themselves before God. Look again at verse 12. He says, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not what? Believe and be saved. So the specific application, yes, is to the lost who close their minds and hearts to God's Word. And as a result, they become manipulated in bondage to the devil, and he keeps them in deception. He blinds them to the glorious reality of Jesus Christ. But I do believe there is an application to us as believers. Because let me ask you something. Have you ever, in your Christian life, uh, developed hardening of the attitudes Uh, Are there times when you simply don't want to face God's truth so you choose not to listen? And we need to understand if we're not growing spiritually, the problem is not God. The problem is not God's seed. The problem is what? It's with the soil. It's with the soil. The problem is your mind and your heart are not receptive to God's Word. So the question then is, well, what causes people, even believers at times, to close their minds and hearts to God's Word? And and look with me in your notes there at three primary causes. And the first one is fear. Now, I'm not talking about a reverential fear for God, which is a very good thing. I'm talking about a bad kind of fear. I'm talking about when you struggle with this thought, you know, if if I really submit my life to God... He's going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. Or he's going to make me a religious fanatic. Or I'm not going to be able to have fun anymore. And of course, the reason we think that way is because what? We're blinded to the glorious love of Jesus Christ. The Scripture says what? Perfect love casts out what? Fear. If you really see God for who he is... If you really see his love for you, you would have no difficulty relinquishing control of your life, giving God the freedom to arrange the circumstances in your life the way that he deems best. And you need to realize God's ultimate purpose in your life is to bring you to a place of true joy and happiness. But that happiness and joy is rooted in a life that is what? Committed to Jesus Christ. A life committed to seeing Jesus lifted up. It's as we glorify Him that we find our greatest pleasure and joy. Look at the second reason that often causes us to close our minds and hearts to God, and that's bitterness. And oh, how I've seen this so often in my counseling over the years here at the church. Bitterness. And when I say bitterness, I'm talking about resentment over past hurt. Many of you have been deeply hurt. You've been deeply hurt by others. You have been deeply hurt by life circumstances. And often we, we, we think, well, if God allowed this, you know, how can I ever trust Him? See, we, we, we go through these very difficult, painful times, and the devil comes in and he tries to sow seeds of doubt. He tries to cause us to doubt God's love and care for His child. But folks, hear me. 
the mistake we often make is we confuse life with God. Life on this planet is not right. It's not fair. It's not just. We live on a planet that has been spoiled by man's sin and rebellion. And even as a believer, you are not immune from hurt. You are not immune from sickness. You are not immune from death. You are not immune from adversity, from being slandered, from being taken advantage of, from being rejected. And be careful you don't confuse life with God. Reality is the only ironclad, wonderful guarantee that you have on planet Earth is that God's with you. And there's nothing that can touch your life that he cannot ultimately use for your good, to draw you closer to him, to make you more like Jesus, to accomplish his purposes in your life. But often because we don't see that, because we don't understand God's ways, how he uses adversity, we resist God. And that bitterness causes us to run from God, thinking that I I just can't get hurt again. Look at the third reason we so often close our minds and hearts to God. And let's be honest, just stinking pride. We just think we can do better. We don't want to relinquish control. You know, sort of like my daughter's famous statement that many of you heard, for the sake of our guest, uh, my wife and I have 10 children. Our youngest child, Chris, is sitting right here, hard to believe, 18 now, uh, Down syndrome. And when she was, what, four or five years old, uh, when she didn't want to obey me, I asked her once, well, Chris, who's the boss in this family anyway? And she looked at me and she said, well, Daddy, you're the boss, but I'm in charge. And... uh, You know, we laugh at that, but that's exactly how many of us live our Christian lives at times. Lord, okay, you're Lord, but what? I'm in charge because I think I can do it better. Now, when you look at this fear, bitterness, and pride, what's the common denominator? It's a failure to relinquish control to God, isn't it? It's just that it's a failure to relinquish control to God. To God, that, that fear motivates me to run from God instead of surrendering God. The bitterness causes me to run from Him, the pride to run from Him, to do it my way. And we need to understand, you're never going to grow spiritually. You're never going to significantly advance in your Christian walk until you come to that place to relinquish absolute control with God. And That's a day-by-day process, isn't it? It's not something you just do one time. No, every day we come to various crossroads. We come to various trials and testings, and we have that decision to make. Am I going to relinquish control to God, or am I going to be consumed by fear or bitterness or pride and run the other way? Look at that next verse. I love this verse. It says, break up your fallow ground. Because what? It is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. See, even in the life of a believer, this is a verse that God spoke to his people. Even in the life of a believer, often because of neglect of God's word, because of these issues of fear, bitterness, and pride, we can neglect the garden of our lives. And our hearts and our minds can be closed towards God. And God's word is, you break up that fallow ground. See, fallow ground is ground that's left 
neglected, unattended, and it does become hard. And you have to put the plow to that ground and break it up and make it tender and sensitive where the seed can penetrate it and produce the God-intended fruit. And what's the plow you have to put to your heart? The plow of repentance. You have to let conviction do its work. You have to acknowledge, yes, I'm being motivated more by my fear or my bitterness or my pride than God. And in acknowledging that, surrender to Him. Look at the second key in knowing God's Word producing the God-intended results in your life. First, second, I must be resolved to grow. I must not only be receptive to God's Word, but I must be resolved to grow. Now, if you don't get anything else from today, please get this. Please get this. Spiritual growth is a choice. You are as close to God this morning as you want to be. That's just a reality. Again, we have to come back to the fact as believers. If we're not growing, the problem's not God. The problem's not His Word. It has the power to do the job. If there's a problem, it's on what? It's on our part and not cooperating with God and walking in harmony with Him. So if you're going to grow, you're going to have to choose to grow. And this brings us to the second kind of soil that Jesus refers to. Look at uh, uh, Luke 8, verse 6. Here's the second kind of soil where the seed was sown. He says, and other seed fell on rocky soil. And as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And then look at verse 13 where Jesus gives the interpretation, the meaning. He says, and those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear, they receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while And in time of temptation or testing, they fall away. You know, again, in Galilee, one of the problems that farmers encountered uh, was limestone rock beds that would be just underneath the soil and would often uh, go uh, undetected. Uh, These areas literally had no depth. Uh, for a plant to really deeply take root, to become uh, firmly embedded. Uh, Therefore, the seed immediately sprouted upward because that was the only direction it could grow in. Uh, Initially, initially, as we see here in the parable, there was the appearance of life, the appearance of growth. But it was a what? Counterfeit. It was a counterfeit, which only ended in disappointment for the farmer. So, what does the shallow soil represent? And I think we can answer that this way. The, sal- the shallow soil represents su- superficial commitment, a superficial commitment to God. And folks, this has literally infected the church in the United States of America. We mentioned this last week, where we have a lot of people making professions, but few disciples. You know, again, I, I, I think I shared this in another message with you some months ago, but one of the most startling statistics you can hear, uh, George Barna, who's probably the greatest statistical researcher 
in terms of uh, Christian ethics and morality in the country, he did a massive study on how many people in this country are actually uh, controlled by a biblical worldview. In other words, they just don't give lip service to the Bible, but the Bible really is the authority in which they base their lives and the Bible is the, is, is the key factor in the decisions they make and the way they look at life, the way they live life, the direction that they're moving in. And you know what Barna found? He found that only 4% of the United States population has a biblical worldview that's really making any difference in his life. Only 4%. Now, you know what was even scarier about this study he did? He discovered in the church those who profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Only 8%. Only 8% of the people who sit in our pews Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday actually have a worldview, a biblical worldview that, that makes a significant difference in the impact on their lives. Again, we have a majority of people sitting in our pews. Every, they give the Word of God lip service. They give Jesus lip service. But their lives have never truly been changed and transformed because of a superficial commitment. In other words, the focus is on all the benefits of Christianity without any of the responsibilities. They like the message that Jesus is Savior, but I don't know about Jesus being Lord. And so they, we've, I've spoken on this before. They think they can receive Jesus as Savior and then at some other point down the road determine whether they're going to follow Him as Lord. And that's a distortion of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The Savior is Christ the Lord. Salvation is not in a prayer. It's in Jesus Christ. He's the gift. You receive all of Him or you receive none of Him. You can't Refuse Him as Lord and receive Him as Savior. You have to receive Jesus for who He is. He died as your Savior and He rose again to be Lord of all. And so inherent in salvation is repentance, a turning from running your life, a returning from sin toward Jesus to follow Him, to embrace Him, to surrender to Him. That's inherent in conversion. Inherent in conversion. Notice Jesus said, they, they hear and receive the word with joy. Did you notice that? He said, they hear the word, and they initially receive it with joy. Now, let me ask you a question. And again, believers, we struggle with this at times. Have you ever gotten excited when you heard a Bible lesson or you heard a sermon that really touched you, but when you walked out the door, nothing changes? You were thrilled by the message, thrilled by the truth, but not transformed. You know, often us preachers hear this, this language. Preacher, you really stepped on my toes today. And I appreciate that. I know that when you say that, it's, it's a compliment saying God uh, spoke to you today. But what I want to know, okay, it stepped on your toes. Is it going to change the way you walk? That's the key. That's the key. Because where there's no root, there's no depth, no depth. There's no resolve to grow. Look at James 1, 22 there in your notes. And we're going to look at this passage in much greater detail next week, this James 1 passage. But for today, verse 22, 
don't only hear the message, but what? Put it into practice. Otherwise, you're merely, what's that next word? Deluding, deceiving yourself. In other words, true faith always produces what? Obedience. How can I say that I really am leaning on Jesus, I'm really trusting Jesus, and at the same time disobeying Jesus? Makes no sense, but many, many Christians try to live their lives that way at different times. I mean, the the, the greatest definition of faith, biblical faith. See, so often we think biblical faith is just giving intellectual assent to the truths of the Bible of Jesus. So we think because, yes, I believe the Bible is God's authoritative word. Yes, I believe Jesus is the the Son of God who left the glories of heaven and came to the ghettos of this, and He he died on the cross for the penalty of man's sin. Because we affirm those intellectually, we think we're there. But the biblical definition of faith would be trusting obedience. In true faith, there's trust and obedience. It's two sides of the same coin. You can't have trust without obedience, and you can't really have obedience without trust, not heartfelt, passionate obedience. Therefore, we need to realize coming to church or being in a Bible study can be really dangerous if you don't watch out. Uh, See, you can hear someone else talk about God. You can hear someone else talk about growing spiritually. And as a result, you think what? You're growing. You're thinking because you can spit out some truths about the Bible that you must be making progress. But as we saw last week, the Bible was not primarily given for information but for transformation. And if the Bible's not transforming you, again, something's wrong. And the problem's not God. The problem's not His seed. The problem is the soil. And so we need to take a hard look at our lives. Uh, And so where and how do you get started here? Look in your notes at five commitments for spiritual growth. And this this is really some practical stuff. And and, uh, to help you remember this, notice how I've given it to you. A, B, C, D, and E, just to try to... Use that as a tool to help you remember. Number one, and it starts here. you got to accept responsibility. You have to accept personal responsibility. One of my children can't look to me to bring spiritual growth in their lives. You can't look to your pastor, your Sunday school. There comes a point where you have to say, I have to accept responsibility for my relationship with God that this is a reciprocal relationship, that there are certain things that God expects of me. Now, He doesn't leave me without His power to accomplish those things. We have the wherewithal to do anything that God commands us as believers because the Spirit of God dwells within us. He is the power that is at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. But it demands cooperation on my part living in harmony with Him. Look at Galatians 6, 5. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. So it starts right here. If you're not growing, this is where it begins. Okay, I'm going to stop blaming others. I'm going to stop making excuses. The problem lies with me. Not with God, not with His Word, not with others, with me. Because spiritual growth, as we saw, is a choice. And I'm about as close to God right now as I want to be. So if I'm not growing, the issue is me. The second thing, notice 
build spiritual habits. Build spiritual habits. And look at 1 Timothy 4, 7. It says, take the time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit. Will you please underline two words, time and trouble. It's amazing how believers miss the simplicity of the need for us to cooperate with God. Spiritual growth is going to take what? Time. And it's going to take what? Trouble. It will not be easy. Think of getting physically fit. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes a resolve to get physically fit. It takes follow-through. Good intentions are not enough. You have to act on those intentions. And you have to commit to changing what? Your eating habits. Your lifestyle rearranging your schedule so that you can provide workout opportunities. Folks, it is no different in spiritual growth. See, some of you sitting back, you're waiting for God to just zap you, like, you know, just this instant spirituality, because that's the way we live in America. We have instant this, instant that. No, it's going to take time. It's going to take trouble. And you don't need to be waiting on God. He's done everything that he needs to do. He's waiting on you to step up to the plate and trust him. And again, I'm not talking about in the flesh, in your own energy, because he's given you everything that you need for spiritual life. What's it say in Ephesians 1? He's blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given us the wherewithal. But now he expects us to receive that provision to appropriate that provision and begin to put it into practice. You know, I've told you before, I don't have a, uh, you know, I don't have, my family laughs at me, but just put it this way. I don't have any ability to work with my hands. I remember some time ago, my wife getting me a tool kit. And you know where that tool kit is right now? It's in the garage, and I've never opened it. I've never gotten into it. Okay, I got, a, I got me a tool kit. I got the tools. But, what good's it going to do me until what? I open the toolkit and begin to use the tools, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. God's given you everything, but it's going to take you appropriating that by faith and beginning to put it into practice. Look at the third uh, important commitment for spiritual Connect with others. Connect with others. Connect with others. God formed the church as his family. He never Wanted a Christian to live as a lone ranger. You can't live the Christian life as a lone ranger. We need one another. We desperately need one another. There are folks at different levels of growth. We're to, we're to, we're to share our experiences with one another. We're to learn from one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to hold one another accountable. And there's strength in that. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. And I love how it reads... In the New Living Translation, look at Ephesians 4.16. The whole body is fitted together, what? Perfectly. As each part, who's that talking about? That's you. As each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts, those are the people around you, to grow. So that the whole body is healthy, growing, full of love. 
So I'm not just whistling Dixie up here when I tell you the importance of getting involved in a small group. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to condemn you or beat you on the head because I love you and I want you to grow spiritually. That's why you need to get involved in a Sunday school class. That's why you need to take advantage of some of these Bible studies, the home fellowships, because you need to get connected with others. You need to build relationships with others in the body of Christ because it's in those relationships you're going to find the encouragement and the accountability that you desperately need. You know, the Army has learned this. I'll never forget talking to, uh, some of y'all remember Colonel Beer years ago. And he, and he was talking about studies they've done about men in combat. And they learned by, by, by studying some of the, the uh, World War II soldiers that when, when a soldier is left isolated, he tends just to hunker down to protect himself. He thinks, if I can't see the enemy, they can't see me. And, and I wish I could remember the statistics. He gave it to me how many men never discharged their weapon in a combat situation. And so the army learned the importance of putting men in teams, putting them together. And they found as they began to putting them in teams, coordinating their responsibilities together, the, 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 the rate of them getting involved and engaged and, and making an impact in combat dramatic was just absolutely dramatic because they encouraged one another. They held one another accountable. And folks, we're in a fight. We're in a spiritual warfare. And that's why we need one another. We desperately, desperately need one another. Look at the fourth thing. Declare my faith. See, as you do begin to grow, this is the mistake a lot of, a lot of believers make. They become a stagnant pool. God never intended that. God never intended for you just to receive, 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 receive. He wants you to receive so that in turn you can give. So as God begins to grow you, he wants you to declare to others what God is doing in your life. He wants you to declare to the lost as a testimony of God's reality, using you as a tool to bring others to himself. He wants you to declare what he's doing in, in your life in the body of believers to encourage one another. And then look at the last thing, to employ my gifts. Employ my gift. We were talking about this uh, last uh, week in our fellow, new guest fellowship. Uh, it says, as each one, that's you, has received a special gift, employ it. In other words, what? Use it. Put it into practice in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So, this is what I would suggest. Again, listening to a message is not going to change you. Would you just simply go over that list? What I would suggest, pick out one of those five commitments that, that, that uh, maybe you're weak in right now that could make a difference. Mark it in your notes and then begin to put it into action. Whether it's accept responsibility or, okay, this week I'm going to begin to build spiritual habits in terms of reading the Bible, in terms of uh, prayer. Uh, or I'm going to connect with others. I'm going to get involved in a Sunday school class. Or I'm going to get involved in one of these Bible study opportunities that Brother Andy mentioned earlier. Whatever it might be. Look at the third truth. I must be ruthless with distractions. I must be ruthless with distractions. Bottom line, bottom line, there's nothing more important 
than spiritual growth in your life. It's more important than your marriage. It's more important than your career. There's nothing more. Now, I'm not trying to say marriage is not important. I'm trying to say your career is not important. But spiritual growth provides the foundation so that you can be the person God wants you to be in your marriage or in your career field to discover God's plan and purpose uh, for your life. Uh, And because there is nothing more important than spiritual growth, you can be guaranteed that the devil is going to do everything in his power to distract you. Everything. Look at uh, verse 7. Luke 8, verse 7. He says, And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And then he gives the interpretation in verse 14. And the seed which fell among the thorns... These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Would you please circle the word choked in verse 7 and in verse 14? Jesus is saying, if you are not careful... The seed of God's Word will be choked out by weeds in your life. And what does the soil with weeds represent? Well, the soil with weeds represents an overcrowded life. And I think this is an issue we all battle with. I battle with an overcrowded life. See, we can define a weed as simply anything, anything that crowds God out and keeps you from spiritually growing. That's a weed. So it's not necessarily a bad or evil thing. So a weed is defined as anything that pushes God out, that crowds God out and keeps you from spiritually growing. And in verse 14, Jesus points out what? Three kinds of weeds. He says what? Worries, riches, and pleasures. He says a lot of people don't grow because of worry, because of anxiety. That word worry in the Greek text, it's marineo. The word actually means to divide, to tear, to rip apart. The word doesn't actually define worry in and of itself. It defines the effects of worry. What worry is, it's concern over what might or might not happen that tears you away from God as a present reality right now. That's what worry is. You get so concerned about what might or might not happen in a circumstance or a situation or a relationship that it tears you away from the fact that God's with you right now. And He's your Jehovah Jireh. Whatever you need, He is. And He's ready to lead you and follow you. But that, that worry distracts you. It rips you away. And then, and, then, and then warriors get eaten up with what? Fear. They begin to try to manipulate their lives because they don't give up control to God. They fall into depression. And it's just a, it's just a vicious, vicious cycle. Riches. When a temporal value system really takes over in my life, And I'm blinded to an eternal value system where raising my level of living and income is more important than raising my level of giving and investment to God. Now, again, nothing wrong with seeing God raise your level of income. Nothing wrong with God blessing you materially. 
but be very, very careful when that happens that you don't become satisfied and your focus becomes on riches. Recognize that is a blessing from God. And as you receive from God, He expects you to share with others. And then pleasures, where just self-gratification becomes more important than God's glorification. And these are issues that can interrupt Christians' lives. These are weeds that we constantly have to police if we're going to know the garden of our life producing what God intends. And folks, we don't have to make this complicated. What do you do with weeds? You uproot them. You eliminate them. You pull them out. And so you need to ask yourself. You just need to be honest, transparent. And you say, what needs to be uprooted in my life? What needs to be eliminated from my life so that I can spiritually grow? What needs to be eliminated from my schedule so that I'll provide the time that we talked about earlier, that time in trouble to get involved? Maybe I'm going to make a decision this week. Okay, I'm going to every day a half hour less of TV or the radio or listen, and I'm going to devote that half an hour to the Word of God and to prayer, and really seeking the Lord, and asking Him to, to grow me. And so, write, write it down. This is your homework assignment. Write it down, and then begin to eliminate it by replacing that thing with Bible study, prayer, or ministry. I want you to see an important truth in that next verse. Uh, I have to deal with this very quickly. You're all familiar with this passage. Jesus is speaking to Martha, and He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. And boy, I think, I mean, I'm convicted just hearing that. I think most of us are. But notice what he said. But only a few things are necessary. Really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken from her. And what was that one thing he's talking about? Sitting at his feet, what? Listening, welcoming God's word being resolved to grow, to follow Him, to love Him, to honor Him, to exalt Him. That was Mary's heart. Remember, she was the one that anointed Him with that alabaster vial of perfume to demonstrate that she had counted everything lost and viewed the surpassing value of knowing Him, of following Him. And would you circle one word? And this is so often neglected when we hear sermons on this text. It says, Mary has, what's that next word? Mary has what? Chosen. What's the difference between Martha and Mary? Mary made a choice that Martha could have made but did not make. And we're right back to the fact that spiritual growth is a choice. And you have to resolve to grow. And then look at the last point. I must be responsive to God's Word. I must be receptive to God's Word. I must be receptive, I must resolve to grow, I must be ruthless with distractions, and then I must be responsive to God's Word. Look at verse 8, and he says, another seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And then look at the interpretation in verse 15, and the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the Word and in honest in other words, they're transparent. They don't try to hide from God. They don't try to wear a mask. They accept responsibility. They submit. They relinquish control in a good heart and hold it fast 
That's, that's the idea of embracing, welcoming, to apply, to obey. That's what that's talking about. Not being a hearer, but also a doer. And bear fruit with what? Perseverance. Bear fruit with perseverance. You know, my time is practically gone. Look there at the very latter part of your notes. I wanted to find an example in the Scripture of what it means to respond to God's Word. And I don't know that you could find a better one than this one right here in Nehemiah 8. This was one of the greatest revivals ever recorded in the entire Bible. This revival took place after Nehemiah had led the children of Israel to complete the rebuilding of the wall. So the wall was rebuilt, A-plus job on the physical renovations. They had returned to the city. There was a superstructure there. Everything was in place. It was moving. But there was a spiritual vacuum. There was a spiritual vacuum. The people's hearts needed to be revived and restored in their relationship with God. And you see this tremendous revival that takes place in Nehemiah chapter 8. And the key to this revival is the Word of God. God used His Word to bring revival. But notice how the people responded. Very quickly, we'll walk through this and then conclude. First, the people were enthusiastic. They were enthusiastic. It says, all the people gathered as one man, and they, don't miss this, circle that, and they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which God had given them. In other words, this was the people taking the initiative and coming to their spiritual leader, and they said, give us the word of God. In other words, they were enthused. They were excited, and that's how you should come every Sunday. That's how you should come to any Bible study. That's how you should come to your Bible reading or a devotion. You come enthused, excited. These are the words of life itself, of power that can transform me, that can purify my soul, perfect me in love, perpetuate eternal life, and produce spiritual growth. So I'm eager, I'm excited to come to this book. And then next, notice they were attentive. The people were attentive. It says, and he read from it. Get this, folks talking about a long message, from early morning until midday. And all the people were what? Attentive to the book of the law. And then look at the third thing. The people were not only enthusiastic, they were not only attentive, but here's the key, they were submissive. They were submissive. It says, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, amen and amen. And what does amen mean? So be it. What you read, may that be, and what is written of us, may it be said of us as we live this out. He says, while lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and what? Worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That word is shakah. It means to bow down low, submit yourself to God. Because you desire to honor Him, you desire to exalt Him in reverential fear. Not that fear we talked about earlier that causes you to run from God. And then notice the last thing, the people were teachable. Now, because they were submissive, they were teachable. Notice it says the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And then look at verse 8 of Nehemiah 8. And they read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So what, what do we, people come to Ezra, Ezra, give us the word of God. Ezra reads the word of God. Then those Levites are preached. They broke up the people into what? Small groups that need to connect with one another. 
And those Levites gave the translation, the sense, how this applies, how to put it into practice. And then the people got up to live it. <laughs> Not talk about it, but what? Live it. To what? What did we see last week? To learn it, to love it, to what? To live it. Father, thank you for what I trust has been a very, very practical message on spiritual growth. Now, Lord, it's for us to take this challenge and to move forward. And, Lord, to move forward not in the strength of our flesh to, to, to so much gut it out, but to realize the Holy Spirit does dwell within us, that your words are life and power itself. And as we make the time, as we take the trouble uh, to become resolved, to get connected, to get involved in your word, uh, that's when your word comes alive. And that's when your word begins to change and transform. So, Father, do that in our lives. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended, I'll be standing in the front to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, We've talked about the gospel here this morning, the need to turn from your sin, running your own life, to embrace Jesus, to invite Him in, to be the Savior of your life, to be the Lord of your life, and that would be my challenge to you. Possibly you're here, you've been visiting, and you heard. God doesn't want you to be a lone ranger. He wants you to be part of the family of God. He wants you to connect with others so that you're in an atmosphere of growth where you can be challenged, encouraged, and held accountable. So I would encourage you to come to unite with the church family. But I'll be standing here to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. So please stand as the invitation is extended.